This week on Making Contact. Bees pollinate plants, and bees are nature's most important pollinators. They do most of the pollination in the world. Honeybees help pollinate one in every three bites of food that we eat. They're vital to our agricultural industry and essential for the survival of the human species. As the world's population continues to grow, so does our reliance on honeybees. Unfortunately, those bees are increasingly endangered. They're sort of expected to behave like agriculture machines, and they're not. They're these really fragile insects. On this edition, producer Esther Mania brings us the story of honeybees fighting to survive in a rapidly changing world filled with pesticides and parasites. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Pollinating insects have long played a vital role in our farming practices. The most important one is the honeybee. Not only do they help pollinate our food, but we also benefit from their wax and their honey. Professor Gretchen Laboon of San Francisco State University and founder of the Great Sunflower Project describes what our diet would look like without bees. I always like to show this picture of a big wheat field. And wheat is a grass and it's not bee pollinated. So most of the diet that you would have if we didn't have bees would be bread, pasta, starchy things, things that come from our grasses. And what you'd be missing are some of our fruits and vegetables, all those colorful things that are on your plates. In science class, children learn early on how important bees are for growing fruit and vegetables. But what we often don't hear is that bees pollinate another surprising food group as well. One of the things people don't really think about is how dependent our meat industry actually is on pollinated plants. Having healthy animals requires that they get enough protein from the plant foods that they're eating, and a lot of that protein comes from the seeds that the plants produce due to bee pollination. Honeybees are not native to the United States. They were brought from Europe during the 17th century, and 200 years later, beekeepers developed new tools for migratory beekeeping that made honeybees more vital than ever. These new inventions allowed thousands of beehives to be migrated to farms nationwide to meet growing pollination demands. Agriculture grew dependent on migratory beekeeping and on the honeybee itself, altering the course of farming practices forever. Author Hannah Nordhaus recently published a book about migratory beekeeper John Miller and the industry, entitled The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Help Feed America. So he has 10,000 beehives, and he hauls them from California in the wintertime to North Dakota in the summertime. And in the springtime, he follows the bloom. Basically, he works his way from California's Central Valley up the West Coast to Washington, pollinating almonds and apples and cherries until he gets to North Dakota in June, and then he puts his bees in one place for a while, and they make honey. And then he brings them back down to California to get them ready for the almond bloom in February. So it's a, an annual ritual of movement. The life of a migratory beekeeper isn't easy, not for the beekeeper or the honeybee, as beekeeper John Miller explains. It's hella hard. It's difficult. You know, it's expensive. It's trying. It's hard on families. It's hard on, on employees. It's hard on equipment. It's really hard on bees. And somehow we persist. 
These are my bees. They're all at work this morning doing their job. These hardworking bees are not only producing our food, but they're also making money for us humans. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, honeybees contribute about $15 billion annually to the nation's crop value and, of course, food security. Brian Johnson is a professor at the University of California at Davis's Department of Entomology at the Harry Laidlaw Jr. Honeybee Research Facility. He worries about our dependence on this non-native pollinator. Pollination of all plants, commercial and wild, is done via a combination of native bees and honeybees. But as our agricultural areas become more and more industrialized, more and more of the landscape is used for cash crops, commercial crops, and less is given over to hedgerows or fallow fields or you know, secondary forest and that sort of thing. We've had a, a large decrease in the population of native bees. And a decrease in native bees means there's more of a dependency on managed honeybees to meet agricultural pollination demands. We have this agricultural industry that meets our food needs which are enormous. There are an enormous number of people in the world today, much more than in the past. And so we need an industrialized sort of agriculture to sustain our population. But because we've had this massive drop in the number of native bees out there, it means that we're more dependent than ever on honeybees. We're sort of stuck in this situation of using the bees as a vital component to our agricultural machinery. Beekeepers can't afford the large-scale changes either. Because of the decreasing value of honey production, crop pollination has become their primary source of income. Beekeeper David Hackenberg explains in this excerpt of the film, Vanishing of the Bees. I wouldn't be here keeping these bees today if it wouldn't be for pollination. I mean, we can't, we can't compete with the world honey prices because China and Argentina and all them people have got us just pinned up against the wall. The Food and Drug Administration has been heavily critiqued by the beekeeping industry for allowing tainted honey to enter the United States some of which contains lead and other illegal additives and has been banned in other countries. Again, an excerpt of the film Vanishing of the Bees with beekeeper Bill Rhodes of Umatilla, Florida. These are uh, container loads of honey coming into this country. They're uh, blends of honey. This one right here is um, four container loads of honey with lactose syrup in it. Now, that's made from milk. I mean, every one of these has got a blend of something, and this one here has got high fructose corn syrup. But here's another one that brought in three loads with beet sugar in it. Despite the health hazards, tainted honey continues to be smuggled in and routinely found on our store shelves and in many of our staple foods, threatening not only our health, but also the beekeeping industry. Beekeeper David Hackenberg. If you took out all the funny honey, we call it funny honey, that's not pure honey. If you took that off the market, it's coming into this country. Maybe the price of honey would go up. But the problem of it is, you know, FDA doesn't really care. While there have been efforts to regulate honey smuggling, it remains a big issue for the industry. And until honey prices stabilize, crop pollination continues to be the primary source of income for beekeepers. The problem is, those honeybee populations that industrial agriculture is now so dependent on have been dropping radically due to a number of pathogens and parasites. Again, author Hannah Nordhaus. Starting in the mid-80s, these two mites arrived in the U.S. The varroa mite came from Asia, but sort of worked its way through Europe, as did the tracheal mite. And the tracheal mite arrived, they think, in 1984, and you can't see it. It's microscopic. It sort of 
burrows into the honeybees' throats and kills them. And then three years later, the varroa mite was first found in Wisconsin. By the early 90s, it had spread its way across the country. And for many years, they were able to keep it at bay with some medications that they had. But the mite became resistant to first one and then another. The varroa mite was devastating to bee colonies throughout the nation, and beekeepers continue to lose about 30% of their bees annually. It's been so destructive to the industry that it put many beekeepers out of business, earning the varroa mite the nickname varroa destructor. Because of these mites, beekeepers started to manage their bees even more heavily by giving them antibiotics. Some say that honeybee survival practically depends on beekeepers now. Beekeepers are really the only thing keeping bees going because most of the feral bees, most of them have died off in the last 20 years. There are a few surviving communities, but not many. So what's left are the bees that are kept by beekeepers. Professor Brian Johnson sees a more complex relationship between beekeeping and bee survival. It is the case that right now, without our intervention in terms of of medication and supplemental feeding and so forth, that a lot of our commercial bees can't survive. But that doesn't mean that the bee is relying on us. If we just stepped back and didn't do anything to the bees, if we didn't medicate them, if we didn't feed them, if we didn't do anything, their population would crash, it would fall precipitously right away, but then it would recover. And the bees that recovered would be more healthy. It's just that we can't allow that to happen because we, we need the bees you know, for these vital economic concerns. So we, we can't let nature take its course. But according to Dee Lesby, founder of the Organic Beekeeping Group, taking a more natural approach is the best remedy. I think it's a combination that when the bee is out of sync with nature, nature's going to come in with all types of parasites, all types of viruses, bacteria, fungus, diseases, and they're going to take down what shouldn't belong there. And nature almost did just that. In the fall of 2006, a new mysterious disease surfaced, threatening bees and the entire agricultural industry. It's a scientific mystery and a catastrophe for American farmers. Millions of bees are dying in hives across the United States. They've been dying in droves and scientists have been stumped. Researchers are calling it colony collapse disorder and it's affecting billions of dollars worth of crops. And bees are in danger. But it seems certain that unless CCD can be checked, U.S. agriculture, perhaps global agriculture, faces a major crisis. A crisis indeed. Their challenges grew even bigger as beekeepers lost nearly a third of their bees. They lost so many that bees had to be temporarily imported from Australia just to meet pollination demands. Colony collapse disorder, often referred to as CCD, isn't isolated to just honeybees in the United States. Other countries also experienced similar losses, and scientists found other native pollinators affected as well. David Hackenberg was one of the first beekeepers to ring the alarm. He's widely known for bringing CCD into the mainstream spotlight. Well, here's the beehive these bee scientists found a couple days ago. It was full of bees. Three hours later, nobody home. They just took off. So what exactly is colony collapse disorder? It's been almost five years since the symptoms were officially diagnosed, but scientists and researchers still remain stumped as to the cause. All we know are its symptoms. Scientist Dennis Van Engelsdorp of Penn State University discusses it in the film Vanishing of the Bees. When a colony is completely dead, you're finding no bees in the colony or in the apiary. 
You're also not finding any of these known pathogens like Varroa mite or honeybee trachea mite that would explain the loss. And if there are bees left in the colony, you only find a handful of very young bees and the queen. This is a colony at the end stages of collapse. The queen isn't leaving. She may be sick, but she's not dying. Here's the queen here. And you can see that's a nice patch of brood. She's really trying and, and you can see eggs right up onto the outside. So she's trying very hard to build that population, but the bees are dying faster they can be replaced. The colony collapse disorder cost the beekeeping and agricultural industry almost a quarter of the nation's 2.4 million bee colonies, totaling tens of billions of bees and an estimated eight to $12 billion in losses. Professor Brian Johnson links colony collapse disorder to the stresses bees experience. There are a lot of hypotheses floating around about what could cause it. So the, the, the main problem is that the bees are, are faced with so many different stresses. They're really heavily managed. They can be fed artificial diets for a very long period of time. They're medicated. Sometimes they suffer from poor nutrition. They're exposed to pesticides in the environment. The crowded hive conditions and the apiary conditions encourage their parasites and pathogens to reach higher levels than they probably do in nature. The thing that people think is that it could be the case that there is a, a new interaction between several of these different factors that affect tiny bee health. Or some people think that it's some new novel virus that we haven't really discovered yet that's causing it, but it hasn't been shown to be the case. But a recently released United Nations report supports the argument that managed hives is the fundamental problem. The report states that globalization and the agricultural industry exacerbate the problem because massive hives create conditions where diseases thrive and spread quickly. Again, Professor Brian Johnson. It's not something that commercial beekeepers have done by choice. It's something that evolved via necessity. It does create stresses on the bees, many stresses. But it's the same for, for every animal that's involved in agriculture, cows and chickens and, and pigs and so forth. They also have problems with disease. It's the same with bees. Every 20, 30 years, we have some new epidemic that sweeps through the bee populations because they're so large, they're so dense, they're so managed that they are prone to health problems. One of the most lucrative crops and one requiring the most management is the almond. California is home to the largest almond orchards in the world. It supplies about 85% of the world's almonds, an industry worth almost $3 billion. But that industry is equally challenging, author Hannah Nordhaus. The almond industry is the great salvation of the beekeeping industry, and at the same time, it's also the bane of their existence. Almonds are incredibly lucrative. Almond farmers will pay 150 to $200 per hive for these guys to bring their hives in and pollinate the crops in February. Almond pollination is really what keeps these guys afloat, but it's really hard on their bees. The almond trees bloom in February, and typically any self-respecting honeybee would be dormant in February. So these guys have to wake them up from their winter slumber, haul them down to the Central Valley, place them in these big holding yards and feed them artificial food, and then they bring them into the almond orchards, and two-thirds of the nation's bees are in the almond orchards in February. That's about 1.5 million hives. And they come from all over the place, and they bring various diseases that they've picked up where they lived. And so it's just the almond orchards have been compared to a, a giant brothel. The Miller describes it as they're just swapping saliva with other bees and vectoring all sorts of diseases. So while the almond paydays are what keep these guys going, 
the almond orchards also are really making it hard for them to keep their bees alive. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Bees, the Threatened Link in Food Security, produced by Esther Mania. So what is a solution? Some suggest that we need to put more energy into strengthening the population of our native pollinators. Professor Brian Johnson from UC Davis's Honey Bee Research Facility. So I think the ideal situation is to sort of design our agricultural landscape such that we get the maximum contribution from native bees and native pollinators in general. And then whenever a surplus pollination is necessary, then we can meet that with managed pollinators. Beekeepers continue to report a 30% yearly loss due to a number of factors, including bad weather, the varroa mite, and colony collapse disorder. Scientists and researchers are all busy trying to discover the cause of CCD and explore preventive measures. In recent years, there's been much more of a, a push than in the past to start focusing more on native bees. We're trying to rehabilitate and, you know, reestablish native bee populations, you know, wherever, and then at the same time rescue the, the health of the honeybees. Beekeepers are also improving beehives by focusing on nutrition and experimenting with new techniques, such as splitting the hives yearly to avoid pathogen buildup. Ironically, Colony collapse disorder has been a positive thing for bees in some respects. Hannah Nordhaus is the author of The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Feed America. The bees' tribulation in recent years, I think, ultimately will be really helpful to them because people have become a lot more interested in bees. They've become a lot more aware of them, aware that they're struggling and aware of how important they are to our agricultural system and just to, you know, our landscape. And so more and more people are keeping bees. One such urban beekeeper is Khalid Almagafi, based in Berkeley, California. He's a bee specialist, and often the one folks call when they discover a bee swarm around their home. What sets him apart from the rest is he doesn't kill the bees or use any poisons. He arrives equipped with a five-gallon bucket and a bee vacuum and relocates them. I accompanied him on a job one afternoon and spoke with his customer, Mr. Dillinger, who called Khalid after discovering bees in his garage. My wife and I saw several bees, and they hadn't been there a few days before when we were working outside, so we realized we had a bee problem. When you say several, you mean like... 20. More More than normal. Khalid located the hive in the garage by simply following the buzz and filling the temperature of the wall. He says he usually knows where they are because it's a little warmer there from all their activity. So what is it about garage walls that allure bees? They're very smart. They find their... Their way, actually, there is a hole, like you see in there. Uh, when they're ready to swarm from another hive, they send some workers to study the new location. So when they find a new location, they go back to the hive and they tell the queen they already find the location. And the queen gets ready, she takes off. They knew that behind that hole, there is a hollow area, like you see here. And that's a nice protected place for them and warm and 
safe and dry, and they just move in. He starts to cut a small incision in the wall, and very quickly, a hive with about 15,000 bees is revealed. I'm going to start sucking the bees into this very gentle bee vacuum. So that way we take them out of the wall and put them in a hive where we belong to. Take them to one of my apiaries. That way they start working in the right spot. As you see here, the honeycomb is a new one. It started to, to build. And we're looking for the queen as well. So we got to get everything into the vacuum. After about 30 minutes of sucking up the bees with his vacuum, Khalid's job is done, for now. He was only stung once in this process, but says it was his own fault. Thanks again. Can I give you a call next Yeah, take care. As we wrap up, Khalid gives Mr. Dillinger a parting gift. I give him a jar of honey in return, because he saved the bees. <laughs> I always trade the people who respect nature and bees with honey. We hop in his truck and head to his home, where he keeps many of his hives. He lives off a busy street just under the freeway, where he tells me more about bees. Your life uh, span is not too long. It's about six to seven weeks and in the springtime and the summer. Then they die because they work hard and the queen keeps laying eggs every day. She lays about 3,500 eggs a day to replace the dead ones and to keep the hive going. Khalid brings the bucket of 15,000 bees from the Dillinger home and adds them to one of his hives. He places a piece of their honeycomb into the hive, paying close attention. What are you looking for right now? For the queen. If I can't find her, I wouldn't bother them too much because now they are in a stage that they're confused. I will let them calm down, see? Yeah, they're not in the stage of their... their they're nervous now, so I gotta let them calm down, then I come back. In addition to being a beekeeper and bee removal specialist, Khalid is also a teacher. He owns a small store called Bee Healthy Honey Shop in Oakland, California. Many bee enthusiasts go there to pick up beekeeping supplies and materials. The other day I found a guy came to me and he said, well, there is a swarm in front of my house. What should I do? I said, well, you should just buy a box from me and I come and help you and we put it in a box and you become a beekeeper. Khalid is originally from Yemen and is also the son of a beekeeper. He's been in the bee industry for almost 20 years now. If we have a swarm of bees in Yemen, people will chase the bees. Not like here, people will be afraid. Everybody's going to claim that swarm is his because people over in Yemen, they use honey as medicinal. So it has high demand and the value of honey is high. He has also lost a third of his beehives and honey production is low. He thinks pollution is to blame for colony collapse disorder. You know, so many things could be the stress of the bees, but I myself think more it's the pollution. The bee is just a tiny insect, you know. But Khalid is also encouraged to see so many people take an interest in bees it's, bees are connected to everything. They're connected to food, they're connected to nature. So there is a balance, you know. To have the bees survive, we have to care about the, our environment. Otherwise, we'll be in trouble. We have to support the beekeepers and the bees. Yeah, and maybe grow some plants if they have backyards. And people are doing just that, 
because more gardens equals healthier habitats for native pollinators. Most importantly, the honeybees. One initiative taking the lead is the Great Sunflower Project, founded in 2008 by Professor Gretchen Laboon from San Francisco State University. The Great Sunflower Project is this wonderful group effort trying to identify the areas where bees are doing well and doing poorly with the idea that there are some steps that you can take in your backyard to improve the habitat for bees. So what we've done is we ask people across the United States and Canada to plant a sunflower in their backyard, a lemon queen sunflower, and by planting that lemon queen you're both creating resources for bees but you're also creating something that we can use as sort of a thermometer to see how bees are doing in your backyard. Once the sunflower is in full bloom, she asked her citizen scientist to observe how many bees visited that sunflower within a span of 15 minutes and report back with the data. So what we're really trying to do is get everybody to contribute so that we know where bees are doing well, bees are doing poorly, and we can start to take some steps for conservation to improve habitats across the U.S. for bee communities. The Great Sunflower Project is expected to top 100,000 participants this year. One of them is Vince Rosado, a fifth grade teacher and gardener living in San Leandro, California. He's been involved with the project for a few years, both at home and in his classroom. I visited Rosado during a great bee count day, where we observed his garden and counted the bees. I try to attract pollinators and butterflies like that uh, passion flower over there is what monarch butterflies really like and you'll see them floating around uh, butterflies love that kind of stuff and you see bees floating around them, uh, over there see you see it oh i see it yeah, yeah. all of these things attract bees so how do you gauge if your garden is doing well enough for the bees bees as part of our ecosystem there's another one no he didn't land though he just buzzed around and this 15, oh, there it is. Oh, there's three of them. I see humming, but they're not. Oh, he's not. He, no, he didn't come. He didn't, he didn't land on it, so has to be on it. That one's just staying there a long time. I saw three in this 15-minute period. If you extrapolate that over a period of time, is really healthy. But if you don't see any for a long time, it's like you got a problem. While waiting for more bees to appear, I asked Rosado his views about colony collapse disorder. It's like... Without pollinators, which is is about 80% of the, of the plant. Is, is, I'm sorry, is that one right up there crawling on it? It is. That's one right, right now. That's right, right on top. That's a honeybee. Uh, but anyway, back to the disorder. If we knock out bees, if something is killing bees, that's directly affecting the food chain. If you knock out bees, you're going to knock out our food. We're going to go starve. Rosado says he thinks human beings are at least partially to blame for colony collapse disorder. When we destroy habitats and make insects do things that, that they normally wouldn't be doing, we really mess up the earth, really do. So I think I mentioned that I want to retire in India. <laughs> it's a, I know some people that are into technology and sustainable living, so there's very little carbon footprint that we would make on the earth. That's, that's the way I want to be. It's one person at a time. The alternative way to live our lives, says Rosado, can be found in his garden, how it builds community and teaches us how interdependent we really are. Whether it's people relying on other people or on those buzzing black and yellow insects that help keep us all alive.
There are 16 houses on this block, and I know everyone that lives here. We share, like I don't do beans because I know the neighbor right over here has them coming out of her ears. You see what people have and it, it helps people communicate better. It's like, it puts you on the same level. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. When you got a garden, this is what you eat. It's a healthier lifestyle. That's basically what it is. And then if people get more used to it. And that bee is still up there. Yep, I think he's um, resting, <laughs> sleeping. For Making Contact, I'm Esther Minia. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. For more information about bees, the threatened link in food security, and to see photos, go to our website, radioproject.org. Special thanks to the producers of Vanishing of the Bees. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736. Or check out our website, radioproject.org, to get our podcasts, download past shows, or help make a difference by supporting our work. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.